If you would turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the book of uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. How great is God's grace. Do we believe what we've sung this morning? Do more. Try harder. Apply more perseverance and you will get the results that you want. It's the slogan that we swim in in our culture around us today. And if you do not get the results you want, it's probably because you have not done enough. You have not tried hard enough. You have not persevered long enough. It's the burden that we place upon ourselves. We live in a performance-oriented culture where we are judged and where we judge ourselves on how well we performed. How often do you ask yourself that question? How did I do? This is not a 21st century idea, though. It's a mankind idea. And to prove it, we can go back to that Augustinian monk, Martin Luther, and in that Reformation. In his early years as a monk, Martin Luther was weighed down by the burden that he was not good enough to stand in the presence of God. He was weighed down by his sin. He went to great lengths to try to purge himself of his sinfulness and to make himself righteous in God's eyes. He spent many a long hour in confession of his sin, scrutinizing his life over and over and over again to see if there was any area, any ounce, any minutia of sin that he could confess, lest it were to be unconfessed and he were to die and stand before the Lord. In fact, his confessions were so long and so drawn out and so trivial in the eyes of the one to whom he was confessing, that the priest told him, Martin Luther, why don't you do a really big sin? Why don't you go out and murder someone? Why don't you commit fornication and then come back and confess it when you have a big sin to confess? For Luther in those early years, the gospel was not good news. It was bad news. It was bad news because there was nothing that Luther could do to make himself look good before God. And the medieval teaching of the Roman Catholic Church was that God would be gracious to those who did their best. For Luther, that did not provide hope. And it brought agony. Because there would always be that question in his mind. Have I done enough? Am I good enough? Just doing your best doesn't cut it before a holy God. 
Such a teaching never brings assurance to one's life, to one's salvation, never brings security. The reason there is no assurance is because it makes us turn in on ourselves and look at ourselves, our performance, what we have done in order to receive and receive God's forgiveness and salvation. It was in Luther's searching of the word, however, that he learned it was not about looking into ourselves to what we have done, but it was looking out of ourselves to God and what he has done through his son, Jesus Christ, to provide forgiveness and salvation. It becomes God's action, which actually brings God's favor to people so that they can be declared right before God. Luther's struggle is a very real human struggle. It is the struggle that we have to fight with on our own, even today, because there might be a part of ourselves where we would like to believe that we're able to earn or deserve our salvation in order to feel better about ourselves, to boast in what we have done, to think that we are good enough, that we've done enough. This is where God's grace has to meet us. This is where the greatness of God's grace has to come rushing upon our souls and our minds so that we're not left wondering, but so that we have assurance of our salvation. Assurance that we have a right standing before God. Assurance of where we will be in the end. Assurance that is built on the greatness of God's grace. But have you seen the greatness of God's grace? Do you know the greatness of God's grace? Do you live like God's grace is truly amazing? Let's stand together this morning and read God's word together. Ephesians chapter 2, the first 10 verses. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, may we drink from the well of water which is your word. And by your spirit, may it satisfy our thirsty souls. In Jesus' name, amen. I want us to see three things this morning that jump out at us from this text, which show us the greatness of God's grace. Three things this morning. So, number one. We see the greatness of grace when we see where we have come from. We see the greatness of grace when we see where we have come from. I had a conversation with a gentleman this week. In the course of our conversation, he said to me, where are you from? So I gave him the brief tour of where I was from. I grew up in Washington, I was in California for four years, I was in Texas for four years, I was in Louisville for ten years, and now I am in Illinois. And he said, I, I knew you weren't from around here because you didn't say, use guys, you said, y'all. That troubled me. It troubled me because I did not think that was an accurate reflection of where I had come from. Listen, I am from the Pacific Northwest. I'm from Washington State. I mean, that's where I consider that I'm from. At the very worst, I'm from the West, right? For you to think that I'm from the South, that's not where I think I'm from. I don't think I'm from the South. I think I'm from the Northwest. We want where we've come from to be a true, true reflection of who we are so that people get it right. So that when people see me, they see who I am. In chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul begins with where we have come from. It is here that we want a true reflection of where we've come from. Get it right, Paul. Tell us who we are. Tell us where we have come from. But does where you've come from trouble you? We would want to stand up and say, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. That's not where I've come from. I've come from someplace better than that. My background is more positive, more encouraging, more uplifting than that. I'm better than that. I'm not as bad as you make it out to be. But what does God tell us in his word? Where you have come from is far worse than where you think you have come from. It's more embarrassing. It's more destructive. It's more uncomfortable. It's more dire and serious than you have thought. You thought that you had come from a place where you had it all together. You thought you'd come from a place where you were satisfied. You thought you'd come from a place where you were not that bad. You thought you came from a place where you were moral, a place of life. But Paul says, and God says, you have come from a place where you were dead. 
You have come from a place of death. You have come from a place of darkness. You have come from a place of despair. You have come from a place far worse than you thought. And Paul tells us here, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Trespasses and sin highlights the fact that our lives were in direct disobedience to God. We were not living for God. We were not seeking to honor Him. We walked. We lived. We reveled in our sin. We were not friends of God. We were not allies of God. Our whole lives were lives of rebellion against Him. We lived in defiance, shaking our fist at Him. We live saying, I've got it all together. I do not need you. I do not want you. I do not need what you have. Leave me alone. I'm doing just fine on my own. Thank you very much. We thought we were really living, but in actuality, we were dead. Paul goes on to explain what being dead in trespasses and sin looks like. Do you see this here? It follows three things. First, the person dead in their trespasses and sin follows the course of this world. This world speaks of a system that goes against God. It speaks of a fallen world that is enslaved to sin and shrouded in darkness. The course of this world is a course that is set against God. A course that is set on cutting God completely out of the picture. A course that is set on infiltrating the minds of people and telling them the lie that to rely on God and to trust in God is a crutch. You do not need that crutch. You do not need that God. You can do everything you need to do on your own. You are powerful. You are special. You can make something out of yourself. You can do whatever you set your mind to. You can be your own boss. The world's course is all about self. Turning people in on themselves. Lifting themselves up to the place where they are God. Where they are to be worshipped. Where they are the most important, most special person most powerful, and they're given the charge that you do not let anyone get in your way. That's the course of this world. The second thing that people who are dead in their trespasses follow is they follow the prince of the power of the air. This is no one other than Satan, the devil himself. Those dead in their sins are following him. They are not being led to God. They are being led away from God. They are not being led into the truth. They are being led into falsehoods and lies and deception. He works in those who are dead so that they are called sons of disobedience. That is disobedience against God. It is a life against God and against His ways. A life fought against God tooth and nail. This is where we have come from. Paul says we all once lived among this group called the sons of disobedience. And it brings us to the third thing that we followed. We all once lived by our passions and our desires and our sinful flesh. We had a ravenous appetite. We gorged ourselves and fattened ourselves on the desires of the flesh 
and mind. Whatever we wanted, we got. Whatever fed our appetites, whatever fed our egos, whatever fed our self-proclaimed deity, we went after. We were by nature, as it says, children of wrath. We were those who deserved God's wrath. Who is it that deserves God's wrath? Surely not us. I mean, God's wrath is reserved for the worst of the worst, right? It's reserved for the murderer. It's reserved for pedophiles, human traffickers, genocidists, mutilators, pornographers. God's wrath is reserved for those people, but it's not reserved for us. We didn't deserve God's wrath. Paul says, You were children of wrath. It's what you deserved like the rest of mankind. This is the problem that all mankind are in. Listen to Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath wrath of God is for the ungodly and the unrighteous and those people who suppress the truth about God. And in fact, he goes on to say they exchange the truth of God for a lie. The wrath of God is what we deserved. It was for us who were by nature children of God's wrath. It's what we had earned. It's where all of our performance, all of our striving... All our efforts, all our strength, all our power apart from God and apart from His truth, all it got us was His wrath. And we were just like the rest of mankind. Let me tell you something this morning. You did not do anything special to make yourself look good in God's eyes. You did not somehow elevate yourself to the point where you deserved something other than God's wrath. You had not brought yourself up to a point where you made yourself look good before God because all that you were before God was a dead corpse. You will never understand the greatness of God's grace if you fail to see where you have come from. If you refuse to look at just how bad, how dark, how desperate, how sinful you were before God. You were utterly hopeless. You were utterly helpless. You were dead. That's what makes God's grace so great. Number two this morning. We see the greatness of grace when we see our union with Christ. We see the greatness of grace when we see the union with we see our union with Christ we come to verse 4 in our verses these are the two greatest words that i think we can read in scripture These two words are words upon which our lives hang. Not only hang, but two words by which our security comes. But God. Look at that for a moment. Look in your Bible. But God. Let our hearts and our minds soak in what God's word is saying. Here is the contrast between you and God. It's a contrast between your action and God's action. 
It is upon these two words that our hope rests. And look at what it says. It says, but God. Not but you. No, but God. God doing what we could not do. God accomplishing what we never could accomplish. God, the true living God, moved and acted. When people were dead in their trespasses and sin, God moved when those people could never move. Never move or act in a way that would bring them salvation. Never move or act in a way that would secure and ensure their rescue and deliverance from God's wrath. Never move or act in such a way that would bring God's approval or satisfaction. Never move or act to be found worthy to receive God's mercy. God so moved toward us because he is rich in mercy. He is merciful. He is merciful to us who are guilty. He is merciful to us who deserved punishment, who deserved judgment, who deserved hell, who deserved God's wrath. The riches of God's mercy reached out to us People who were nothing more than sinners. God shows his mercy to to sinners. The riches of God's mercy shows the God who gives his mercy freely and bountifully. God is not stingy with his mercy. How much mercy can I get away with giving them? Let me just give them that much. How much, can I, how much mercy can I afford giving up? God never says that. Being the dead, needy sinners that we were, we needed the riches of God's mercy lavished upon us. And God, being the God who He is, the God of steadfast love, who is merciful and slow to anger, it's this God of love who actively demonstrated his love to us. It is God's love that was so moved toward us. Paul calls this the great love with which he loved us. Notice that it does not say because we so greatly loved God. Notice that it does not say that we move toward God. Notice that it does not say that somehow it was our affection towards God that made God move or act or do something on our behalf. But it was God's great love with which he loved us. Listen to 1 John 4, 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The greatness of God's love is seen in the greatness of His action and His commitment toward us. How did God demonstrate His great love to us? By giving us the greatest gift, the gift of his only son, Jesus Christ. 
The son who came to earth, who lived among us, who suffered like us, who died for us. God was willing to give his son, his son who would be beaten and scourged, his son who would be mocked and ridiculed, his son who would be nailed to a cross of wood, his son who would be lifted up before all the world in his shame and nakedness, his son who would bear all our sin, his son who would receive our punishment upon himself, his son who would be forsaken by God because of the sin and the guilt he bore. Why would God allow all of this to happen? Why would God do such a thing to his son? Why would Jesus willingly lay down his life? Because of the great love with which he loved us. What makes this love even greater? Did God love us because we reciprocated his love? Did God love us because we deserved his love? Did God love us because we'd earned his love? No. It reminds us here. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, in case you had forgotten, from verse 1, Paul reminds us again, you didn't deserve this love, you were dead in your trespasses. You know, oftentimes we talk about grace, And we talk about it as God's unmerited favor towards us. And we think of that word unmerited and we think, uh, you know, I didn't didn't do anything to earn it. I didn't do anything bad not to earn it. I think maybe it might be more accurate to say that it is God's demerited favor in the sense that we had done everything not to deserve God's grace and God still gave us his grace. We had run away from him. We have done nothing to deserve it. Demerited means we are guilty, that we are culpable, that we have done all we could to ensure that we do not deserve and could never deserve God's grace. You know, oftentimes, as we think about our salvation, we would like to think of ourselves as a swimmer out in the vast ocean. And that God comes in this big tanker and he throws out a lifeline to us and we grab a hold of the lifeline and God pulls us into the ship. It's not that. That's not salvation. Salvation is you in a coffin encased in cement buried six feet under the ocean floor. And God comes and raises you from the dead and gives you life. God doesn't throw out a lifeline to you. God raises you from the dead. That's the greatness of God's grace. And he reminds us and he says, by grace you have been saved. Grace is not God giving us good advice. Grace is not God giving us a helping hand. Grace is not God meeting us halfway. Grace is nothing less than God raising people from the dead. And that's first seen even in Jesus Christ as he was raised from the dead. And now it's seen in all those who put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ as we are raised from the dead. That's what Paul says here. We have been raised up with him. We are those who have new spiritual life, are new creations. We are Christians who are in Christ. And think about it. He says, not only have you been raised up with Christ, but look at what else it says there. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Is that what you believe about your life, Christian? 
that not only have you been raised from the dead to walk in new spiritual life, but actually now you've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places? Did we deserve such an honor? Did we deserve to receive such authority that God's given to us? Did we somehow work our way up the corporate ladder to get there? We are only ever acceptable in God's eyes because we are in Christ. This all stems from what Paul says earlier in Ephesians chapter 1. Listen to these verses. This is Ephesians 1, 19 through 21. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ... When, listen, he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And it's right after these verses that then we're told, and that's your life too. You've been raised from the dead. You've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Do you see, see the reality of who you are and why you live the way that you do because of God's grace that he's lavished upon you in Jesus Christ? Do you see the greatness of God's grace in your union with Christ? Because Jesus Christ is the embodiment of God's grace. If you want to know God's grace, you have to know Jesus Christ. There is no other grace. There is no other favor from God apart from Jesus Christ. There is no, there's no way to cut Jesus out of the equation or diminish Christ and think that somehow you can still have God's grace. The fullness of God's grace. The immensity of God's grace is seen at the foot of the cross where Christ died. It's seen at the mouth of the empty tomb where he was raised from the dead. And it's seen in the heavenly places where Christ now rules and reigns from on high. This is the vast ocean of God's grace that he has given you. And it goes on to say, if this grace isn't enough, okay, think of all the grace that God has given to us in saving us, in rescuing us. That grace is great. It's in the past. God gave me some great grace in the past, right? What does Paul go on to say? Verse 7, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This isn't merely grace when you first believed. When you first put your trust in Christ, this grace is going to be evident throughout your life in the coming ages. God is going to continue to demonstrate in our lives the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It is going to be wave upon wave upon wave of his grace. Does this mean that life is going to be easy? That's going to be perfect. That's going to be free from hardship, suffering, and difficulty. Does it mean that everything will turn out exactly how we want it to? Does it mean that all of your plans will come to fruition? That all of your desires will be met? No. It means that God will continue to show you that it's not about you. He will continue to show that his favor of salvation that shines upon you 
is not determined by the circumstances of your life. It's not determined by how much you think you have earned it or deserved it. It's all of God's grace from beginning to end. And the immeasurable riches of his grace will never be experienced if we are at the center, but will only ever be experienced when Jesus Christ is at the center. God's grace is a costly grace. It pulls us. It stretches us. It moves us out of our comfort zones. It moves us out of the position of control. It moves us out of the position of autonomy. It's grace that flows from the cross. Grace that flows from suffering and sacrifice. Grace that flows from the wounds of the Savior. Beware. Beware, brothers and sisters, of easy grace. Beware of cheap grace. This is what a German theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, said about cheap grace. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ. Living and incarnate. Let's be honest. Cheap grace is no gospel. There is no salvation and ultimately there is no Assurance from cheap grace. Have you settled for cheap grace? It's time to run to the cross and embrace the Savior, God's costly grace that saves. Third thing this morning, finally, third thing. We see the greatness of grace when we see the power of grace at work in us. We see the greatness of grace when we see the power of grace at work in us. We use these words quite freely. Uh, Often we might not even give it much thought. We say, I'm saved. I'm saved. But it begs a question, doesn't it? Saved from what? Or... Saved from whom? Saved from hell? Well, yes. Saved from death? Yes, again. Saved from our sin? Of course. But behind all of those reasons is the main reason, the main thing that we're saved from. We are saved from God's wrath. We are saved from God Himself. So Paul, again, repeats this phrase, for by grace you have been saved through faith. We see that grace not only grants salvation, but a grace that also secures our salvation. A grace that ensures that God's wrath is completely satisfied. There is no wrath of God remaining upon the one who has put their faith in Jesus Christ. We were once children of wrath, those who stood condemned like the rest of mankind, But now we have been rescued from God's wrath by Christ who bore the wrath of God which we deserved on the cross. We have not and cannot do this. We are not saved by something we have done. As Paul goes on to say, no, this is the gift of God. And I think he is referring there to that first sentence in chapter 8. Everything, grace you have been saved through faith. All of that, all of that is a gift 
from God. And that's the power of grace that works in you. Do you see the power of grace that works in you? Let me quickly propose a couple scenarios to you for a moment. As you think about, is God's grace evident in my life, day to day? This is a scenario that Jerry Bridges gives in his book, Disciplines of Grace. He talks about having a good day or having a bad day. Let's suppose for a moment that I had a bad day. I sleep in past my alarm. I quickly jump out of bed, rush to get ready, barely have time for a cup of coffee, gather my kids, and rush out the door. It's a rainy day, gloomy, dreary. Don't have any time for prayer or Bible reading that morning. I get to work, and nothing goes the way that I want it to. Nothing's easy, everything's difficult and hard. And I definitely don't feel like God's presence is with me that day. Finally, I make my way home, trudge through the doorway, slam my bag down, and my wife greets me at the door, asks me how my day was. I mumble something about how awful it is and am cold to her. And at that same moment, my kids are there, and they're being loud, and I yell at them to be quiet. Just then, I have a knock at my door. Open the door, and there's a person there who says, can you tell me how to know Jesus Christ? Now, pause. Hold that thought. Let's go to the good day for a moment. It's a great day. My eyes pop open early before my alarm. I jump out of bed. It's a great day. The sun is shining. The birds are chirping. The squirrels are scampering around. I have a great time in God's word and prayer that morning. I have a delicious breakfast with my family. We pray. My kids and I go whistling out the front door. I make it to work, and everything goes the way that I want it to that day, everything the way that I'd planned, and I especially feel that God's presence is with me that day. I come through the door, dancing, make my way to my wife. She asked me how my day was. I said it was a great day. I give her a pet peck on the cheek. I whisk her off her feet. I tell her sweet nothing's in her ear. All of a sudden, there's a light that shines and my children come running. Daddy, daddy, daddy. I scoop them up in my arms and I twirl them around and we hug and we kiss and all of a sudden there's a knock at my door. The person at the door says, can you tell me how to know Jesus Christ? Now put yourself in that place for one moment. After which scenario, would you be more confident if you were to share the gospel with that person? After which scenario would you believe that God would use you more or bless you more after the good day or after the bad day? And then why? Because of something that you had done that day? Because of your performance that day? Is that what would make the difference in your confidence? Or, in either situation, would your confidence be in the grace of God to use you and bless you 
after the good day and after the bad day. Jerry Bridges says it this way, your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace and your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. God's grace removes the boasting from our lives. It removes the look what I did. It's no longer about our performance. It's no longer look what I did, but it's look at what Christ has done. And Paul goes on to say at the very end here, this does not mean that there are no good works in the believer's life, but it means that God has created you and prepared works for you to do good works because this great This greatness of grace is so great in your life that these good works then just pour out of your heart and pour out of your lives towards those people who you come in contact with. This is the furthest thing from the self-made man or the self-made woman. We are new creations in Christ and we are made to do good works. The works that God has prepared for us to do beforehand. These are not some brilliant ideas that we've discovered. These aren't strategies that we've devised to do ministry that we've never thought about before. No, these are works that God has destined us to do that we should walk or live in them. And look at where we've come from. We were those who once walked in our trespasses and sin. And now look where we are. Now we walk in the good works that God has prepared for us to do. It is the riches of God's grace that he's lavished upon us that brings about this Action and this response in our lives. If you are complacent, unmoved, unimpressed, unmotivated, and bored by the Christian life and by the gospel, you don't understand what grace is. You don't understand the greatness of grace. Receiving God's grace completely reorient, reorients your life, how you live your life. Let us see that it is by grace alone that we are saved that we are able to find God's favor and his grace by his action toward us alone and that that would wake us up from our lethargy. May God's grace fuel the desire in our hearts to spread the gospel, to see the glory of Jesus Christ proclaimed, the one who came, the one who abolished death, the one who brought immortality to light through the gospel. This morning, if you do not know this grace. If you don't know the grace that we've been talking about today, God's grace is sufficient for you. God's grace is sufficient to bring you in, to forgive you of all of your sin, to bring you into the family of God, to resurrect you from the dead. The Bible tells us all we do is Cast ourselves, put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The grace is there, waiting for you today. What about us who who do have God's grace this morning? Do you believe that God's grace is sufficient for all people? Or in your mind, do you make a distinction? There are sinners, and then there are sinners. God's grace is sufficient for all. 
Not just for the people who look like us, not just for the people who talk like us, who are in our same level, who are, we're comfortable with. God's grace is sufficient for everyone, and we want everyone to come into this grace. God's grace is for the scum of the earth, for the vilest of the vile. God rewards us not because of our right living. God shows us his grace simply because it's his choosing, his choice. We cannot hold on to some idea of earning or deserving God's grace. Those do not, do not have any place in God's vocabulary of, of grace. We are sinners saved by grace alone. Jesus was accused of eating with sinners and tax collectors. And then Jesus in Mark 2, verse 17, says this. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That's the greatness of God's grace. Let's pray. God, your grace is great. And I pray that you would impress this upon our hearts and upon our lives today. That we might see your greatness of grace and that we might see what you have done for us and what you have accomplished for us and that it might move us and that it might work in us as we seek to now do those works which you have prepared beforehand for us to do. Lord, give us soft and sensitive hearts toward your grace. And may we today rejoice that it is in grace and grace alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing this communion hymn, Behold the Lamb. And as we sing this song, if the leaders would make their way forward as we participate around the Lord's table together. <laughs>